Okay. So I can say whatever I want right now while we're in the edit out mode while you try to fix your connection. Sweet. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Superhero Ethics Podcast. I'm Jacob Malicic. I'm one of your hosts. And today we've got something a little bit different for you, where we're going a little bit outside of our normal production to bring you a topic about a piece of media that is not moving. It is not a moving picture. Uh, it is, in fact, a novel, or at least the basis of our discussion will be The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, another another thing that we are doing today that is quite different from every episode prior to this point is we regrettably are without Matthew Westfox. He cannot make it to this recording today. However, I am joined by a good friend of mine, a listener of the show, and somebody who introduced me to Brandon Sanderson as an author and uh, Way of Kings, the Stormlight Archive series in general. Uh, today we are joined by Rob McKenzie. Rob, introduce yourself. How's it going? Uh, going pretty well, Jacob. Uh, so, my name is Rob McKenzie, and you may know me. I record sometimes as a guest with another podcast, Magic the Amateuring. I'm a level three magic judge, and I'm regional coordinator for the USA North Region in the Judge Program, and I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy and watch a lot of science fiction and fantasy and, uh, like, voting member of the, of the, um, I vote at Worldcon when I remember and so I, like, I vote for the Hugos every year, and I read a whole bunch of random stuff all over. I tend to be more, more science fiction literature focused than I am, than I am television focused. Yeah, Rob is one of the most uh, well-read people I am familiar with, and especially in terms of of sci-fi fantasy. Um, and he's, at least in my experience, there's uh, there's very good taste there. And one of the things we really wanted to dig in with with Way of Kings specifically, uh, is that. There are some themes that show up in this book that I feel are, are universal. We, we see them uh, commonly in other forms of media that we talk about on this show, but they aren't handled in quite the same way. Some of that has to do with the media, but some of it just has to do with the fact that Way of Kings is actually, at least for me, uh, very novel in, in terms of the epic fantasy genre. At least for me, and I haven't read a ton of epic fantasy because it's very hit or miss for me, but in this, I haven't read anything that's quite like the kind of world that Sanderson is building. Um, and Rob, do you feel the same way, or, or do you actually think there are some, some reasonable parallels with other authors? So I would contend that in a lot of ways, Brandon Sanderson isn't a fantasy author. Um, he's going to tell you that he writes both fantasy and science fiction, and I don't think he writes a lot of actual, like, traditional fantasy. He writes a lot of science fiction. His his worlds are very, very heavily structured. They have rules. And he has a lot of heroes that tend to be si magical scientists, basically, because they can understand the magic system as a set of logical rules within it. And that's what his world building is based on. And he has all all sorts of personal internal rules for how he writes He's also, unlike a lot of write authors, if you if you look at a lot of authors, they did something else, and then they took that and they applied it to writing. Uh, Brandon Sanderson just always wanted to write novels, and he currently has a master's in creative writing, and he teaches at Brigham Young University at, in creative writing. And so he is, like, he really understands writing. So, so let's dig into why we wanted to talk about this. So one of the big things we wanted to bring up... Um, about the world specifically, and, and one of the interesting sort of uh, more ethical questions are posed by these these 
at first presented to us as potentially fictional figures of the Knights Radiant. So, Rob, if you could go into who are the Knights Radiant? Uh, okay. What do they represent, and, and what's why do we want to talk about them? So, um, the the Knights Radiant are they're an, not a traditional Earth Order of Knights. Usually, traditional Earth Order of Knights is is a top down hierarchical structure for a particular purpose. The Knights Radiant are because it's a magical universe bound by magical oaths, and they're the magic users of their world. Uh, there's I'm going to do a, a really brief rundown of Roshar, the world that that these books are set on, that the Stormlight Archives are on. And what it boils down to is there are magical storms that sweep the world regularly. Everything's set on stone. There's not a lot of dirt anywhere, as in dirt's weird. And the Knights Radiant were, were a set of magic users that existed in the past, and nobody's had access to their powers for about a thousand years. Uh, there, there were a set of uh, cataclysms called desolations that happened in the past, and the Knights Radiant were were tied up with dealing with those those regular cataclysms. They were regular enough where they aren't numbered. There, there were a lot of them, and the the Knights just dealt with these these regular desolations over and over, and the the magic the big elaborate complicated ten element based magic system is all tied up in the Ten Orders of the Knights Radiant. And they, at some point in the past, abandoned their oaths, and the whole order, like all Ten Orders, vanished. And, yeah. So, when, when you're talking about abandoning their oaths, what, what are we talking about in terms of, of their oaths? I mean, this is the, a leading question. Yeah, this I is, obviously this am is, familiar this with is, a little bit of it. Yeah, this, this is, is the, kind of the meat. Yeah, this is the meat. They made, so the... The orders had a core oath that all ten followed, and then each one, oh, most of the orders had follow-up oaths that were spe specific to their orders. So the the core oaths were uh, life before death, strength before weakness, and journey before destination. And they all boil down to means before ends. Uh, right, and it's interesting, uh, in particular, the strength before weakness oath. When you hear something like that, life before death, I think most people can can get on the face of it. Okay, that makes sense, especially for people who are who are ostensibly protectors from these consistently occurring cataclysmic events that that they're trying to protect people from. Uh, strength before weakness sounds like a, a vow that an oppressor would take. Uh, rather yeah. than rather than a protector, they they mean it in the opposite sense. So, uh, the the quote from the from the book is: "All men are weak at some time in their lives. The radiant protects those who are weak and uses his strength for others. Strength does not make one capable of rule; it makes one capable of service." So right. they they're saying that that strength serves weakness rather than strength has power over weakness. Uh, right. And that's it's a very interesting distinction, uh, and, and it's sort of central to uh, some of the actions we see some of the characters in Way of Kings performing. Now, as as you mentioned, the Knights Radiant don't exist at the point that, that we're in the book. They haven't existed for a thousand years. Um, but we are exploring some people who, uh, shall we say, show signs of, you know, of revitalizing some of these ideas. Yes. Uh, 
sort of unknowingly like it's it's not their intent they're not going around like uh kaladin who we'll talk about later is not going around going oh, i'm gonna be a knight's radiant someday uh right he probably fact, wouldn't say it lately but yeah he would say the opposite the knights right. are universally reviled because everyone believes that they abandoned humankind in the past they have a term for the day that the knights abandon their oaths which is the day of recreants and it's a big historical thing and no one has any information on why they did it they only know that it happened uh so the right. it's it's a major plot point significantly later in in fact uh because you're in the middle of book two i, I i'll just warn you you don't really find out why until book three that's so, that's totally fine. It, uh, while we're here, it's a good point future. to interject and say we are going to be spoiling some of Way of Kings. We're going to be, actually because I feel a lot of it is has a lot of value in discovering it. I would encourage anybody who who enjoys these kinds of media to check this book out because, oh boy, uh, this is some of the best writing I have read, and honestly, the best epic fantasy that I have ever read. I feel. Um, Probably because there's a, a, a sci-fi bent to it and a logical yep. ordering behind it, uh, but also to just the characters, the world, it's it's so very rich, and there are a lot of these really morally problematic situations that you can really sink your teeth into and, and agonize and torture yourself over, uh, particularly when we get to um, the actions of certain people in positions of power. Yeah. Uh, so... I I, I also want to call out Brandon Sanderson because he part of the reason that you think that it's so well structured and organized is this is the third time he's written these books. <laughs> like he he wrote them and then he was like ah didn't like them very much and so he has a he did, then did a second pass during his masters and then he's coming back now with multiple years under his belt as an author and like just yeah I'm taking a third found, found a way to tell the story right yeah pretty much right so. We, we talked about Life Before Death, Strength Before Weakness. The last one you said was uh, Journey Before Destination. Um, yes. Which, and, and then you, you immediately said these are all mean means before ends. Uh, yes. Which, in, in that same kind of sense that, that um, if if you get to a place, so Journey Before Destination is if you, if you get to a place, um, but the way you got there, if, if you achieved your objective, however noble it was, if the way you got there was a problem, then you did nothing uh yes. you did nothing good you just did a world of bad and they they also really hammer on every single person has the same destination death that means right. that the that the time before death the journey to death matters that's the only important part because we're all going to the, we all start at the same place we all end at the same place and the the space and time in between and the knights really focus and understand that that the the way that you live your life is as important as the way that you the way that you die right so when when we're talking about uh when we're talking about these oh, the oh's of the night's radiant um so again these are people who were at the at the time they were protectors for this world and each order and correct me if i'm wrong on this but each order took these first three Correct. They, uh, this was central to their tenets, central to their philosophy in how they approached uh, performing their duty. And in fact, their magic doesn't function if they are not adhering to these oaths, as I understand it. Yes. Um, which is very interesting because, in a lot of ways, if if they start to, uh, if they start to do, what's the word I want to use? Uh, slip, Deviate. Right. Yeah. If they start to uh, start to 
appeal more to their baser instincts. Um, what makes them more powerful, what makes them more potent, stops being available to them. Uh, right. Which is in and of itself an interesting concept because they're in that way they're kind of like superheroes with built-in checks uh, yes. to their power. Uh, there's there's a lot of like theoretical underpinnings of this in the universe, and it's um, I'm going to go into some of my pet theories, which you which I had as as early as book one, because there's um, Similar to if you've ever read Dune, which is probably the most famous science fiction book that does this, there are epigraphs at the start of every chapter. Mm-hmm. And so they're little, they're little quotes either, for, and most of them are from, uh, one of the, the uh, conceits of the book is that there's in-world books. And it's called the Stormlight Archive because each of the, the books of our series out in our world is all, the, all of the quote epigraphs that come from a piece of text in the world come from a single piece of text per book. So The Way of Kings, the first book, all of the epigraphs that quote things in world are quoted from The Way of Kings, uh, an in-world book that talks about honor and nobility and loyalty and how to be a good king and how to be a good steward of your people. Right. And so there's a lot of, there, and it's one of the oldest surviving texts in the world. And so there's a lot of like, huh, nobody seems to understand that piece of history going on. Well, it, and it also, if I and correct me if I'm wrong in my recollection of this, but it's it's considered somewhat heretical the text itself to their their current religion, um, yep. right? Uh, the... Because because Dalinar, one of the characters, uh, we're going to get into the characters shortly because they're part of the the exploration of this overall theme of of honor and of and of oaths and of having to bind yourself to an ideal greater than you in order to achieve something. Um, Dalinar specifically has become entranced with this book, at least in part because his brother, who was uh, assassinated, had been previously entranced by this book, previously like using it to start molding how he felt their society should progress. Yeah, let's. Do we want to talk about Dalinar really quick? Yeah, let's let's yeah. go ahead and dive so, into Dalinar. So a little bit. yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna introduce Dalinar. Dalinar as a character is he's my favorite character. So I'm gonna I'm gonna come across as really really loving Dalinar, but he's he is the brother of a, of a former king he's the uncle of the current king of alethkar which is the the nation where almost all the action of the books takes place and alethkar is the land of warriors and it's the land of like brandon sanderson wanted to write a book where they had six foot long light as a feather magical swords and and ran around in mech armor and so he built a world where that where magical mech armor was a thing. And so they, they wear the shard plate that's that's uh, very tough and makes you super strong, and they wield shard blades, which are which can cut through anything as magical swords. And Dalinar is... Their their structure, their, their organizational structures, there's a king, and then there's the ten different districts or regions have a high prince that's in charge of them. Uh, kind of, they're, they're like a, a medieval... They're... They're kings that are subject to a higher king, basically. Right. It's, it's feudalism. They're like yes. the feudal lords. They just get the title of high prince. I think because there is a uh, clear chance at succession for any one of them, and they used to war with each other in the history yeah. of the world. Yeah, they, they used to be split into ten different areas, and Dalinar, his brother Gavilar, and uh, uh, Toral Sidious, who everybody just calls Sidious, uh, got together, and they... They united the ten high princes uh, via a a bloody campaign of conquest in their youth. And Dalinar, they they had three roles. Uh, Sidious was the sneaky one, 
who made elaborate political plans. Uh, Gavilar was the big idea guy and the, the point man and the leader and the one who was the high prince and would be king someday. And Dalinar was the sword. Dalinar is the greatest warrior in the world. They, they fear him. He doesn't get out into combat much, but they call him the Blackthorn. And fear of him coming out and, and single-handedly defeating a, a substantial percentage of an army is not unheard of. He's, he is the best man with, with shard plate and shard blades in the world. And he, Gavilar, his brother, after they united the kingdom, started reading Way of Kings and decided that he wanted to be, instead of a bloody conqueror, a noble and good king who built a, who built a, a kingdom that would be honorable and last. And then Gavilar got assassinated. That's not a spoiler because it happens in the... In it's the very shows. early. It's like, like the second chapter. Gav Gavilar is not on stage during right. it, during this book. And then the crown passed to his son, uh, Elokar. And uh, Dalinar and Sidious swore that they would defend Elokar's throne. And they have. Uh, they launched a, a bloody uh, war... A they war also, yes... They also swore revenge on yeah. uh, the people responsible for the assassination, which who are not human, by the way. So Correct. it's it's pretty easy to it's pretty easy for them to say we want the, like these people assassinated a king, announce that they did it, and show no remorse. We're going to hunt them down and kill them. Uh, jump cut to five years later, which is where all the action is. Yep. And so Dalinar is Dalinar decided in the intervening five years that he was going to figure out why his brother got so into the way of kings and what he got from it. And the the reason why he did this is not explained. And uh, that's actually a plot point for book three. So you have that to look forward to, Jacob. <laughs> and so he decided that, he, that like he's been spending all of his time in the in the book like following the old codes of war, which involve things like uh, your officers should not be drunk while there's the potential for a battle. So he holds his personal officers and his sons to, you can't drink drink any stronger than this, basically light beer or light wine. Mm -hmm. um, he said, um, officers should always be in uniform when you're in a potential combat situation. So everyone wears the colon uniforms all of the time. Right, and it's all of the time because where they are right now, is they're just in a contested war zone constantly because of the yep. circumstances they're under. Yep. Um, and and not, not to deep dive too yeah. much on this, but uh, Dalinar specifically uh, is an interesting character from the perspective of this discussion because he's somebody who once fought with no remorse and not much resembling um, honor as far as I could tell given how people talk of him and of how he used to be in the past, who's at the point that we reach him has come around to the idea that there's a better way of doing these things. And we need to be setting an example and doing things right uh, to, to elevate our society to a better place. Yep. And so where we reach him, he's trying to accomplish these things by example. And it's, it's illustrated over and over. It's very, it's very stark. There are ten. Each of the high princes has their own war camp. So there's ten war camps that are all separate, like areas that are organized differently. And when you go into Dalinar's war camp, everything is organized. Everything's clean. Everything's regimented. It feels like a, a clean, well organized military base. When you go into Sidious's war camp, it is slovenly and disorganized. And he lets his men bully people and run roughshod. And the like 
just everything like they each of the characters of the ten high princes actually comes out in their war camp during scenes when you go into their camps right um, Sidious's is the most incredibly pragmatic, incredibly savage environment because that's how Sidious gets things done. He follows that he follows the rule of the strong should lead and rule, and thus um, suppressing the people beneath you and then watching the the strong cream rise out is how you get is how you get effective people out of an organization, which is a very different philosophy of leadership and honor than Dalinar's, which is support your people um have good strong clean organization and instead of instead of pushing people down and watching the cream rise out it's raise the cream up figure out who's good and then promote them right right and it can come from anywhere uh that that's a bit of a spoiler but dalinar shows we'll just say dalinar shows a capacity for acknowledging quality regardless of people's station this is a very uh hierarchical society um, one of the things that's, that is interesting about uh, this series as well is that we are dealing with a, with a society most of the time that has a clear caste system, and it kind of goes from the the nobility, uh, who are the light eyes. Uh, there, you know, that that's uh, that term is not used in a in anything other than a literal sense, as far as I can tell. Is that um, people with light colored eyes, they're noble. And yep. so they're in the Alethi society, they're viewed as such. We have the dark guys who are kind of like the middle class, uh, in that they get stomped around uh, by people, but are still like, they're still presumed to know things and they have some agency in their lives. And then there are like literal slaves, um, both the in the form of the Parshman, who, that's that's a, another topic, but uh, the they're, they're the people who aren't human that serve, but then they're also just straight-up human slaves that are treated like uh, essentially trash. Yeah, and so to give you an idea of how ordered and regimented the society is, by my estimation, there's 42 castes. Um, oh, you're talking there's... about the, the levels of Dawn and stuff? Yeah, there's there's 10 Dawns of Bright Eyes, there's 10, there's 10 Dawns of Dark Eyes, and men and women are treated very differently. There's actually rules for how men and women behave in the society that are and jobs. Women can be scientists. Women know how to read. Men do not learn how to read. Um, right. Men, it's men considered build very things, men socially... farm, men fight. Hmm? Sorry, say that again. I was just going to highlight that it is in, in, uh, in Alethi society, at least, it's considered incredibly, uh, incredibly... Heretical. Word I want to use. Yes, heretical for a man to learn to read. Yes. Uh, only the clergy can, and the clergy aren't treated like normal people. Yes, the the clergy are the are the so there's there's ten there's ten dons of light eyes, ten nons of dark eyes, and each one has men and women within each one that are segmented. So I feel like they're separate from each other. And then there's the slaves down at the very bottom, and then off to the side there's the priests that are just different from everybody else. But they're all slaves. They they they're owned by a bright eyed lord. Right. So so the reason why I bring up this heavily regimented society is that. Uh, Dalinar shows capacity for seeing people from the very lowest rank, the very bottom stations of this very hierarchical, very uh, stratified society, and seeing this is somebody who is a quality person who needs to be elevated, and so I'm going to make that happen. And I like it's it's very rare we see characters in this world doing that, uh, and it's it's interesting because uh, 
I'm having a hard time coming up with a parallel to other media that I digest where we see characters like that, where one of their strengths, at least in my opinion, is the ability to see the capacity for, for greatness in others. I guess, technically so, speaking, you could argue like Star Wars. Yeah, so I, I would actually contend that a lot of character-driven science fiction does this a bit. Uh, I, I would parallel the Vorkosigan saga. Uh, Dalinar par- parallels Errol Vorkosigan very strongly in a lot of ways. And the he's Errol Vorkosigan is a military leader. He's an admiral. He's the greatest strategist in his world. And he he also is rebuilding the entire military and the entire political system on his planet basically by main force while he is the um uh, well it's, the emperor dies in one of the books and hit like the emperor's son is like six and so he is placed in charge of the regency and he he says here's the deal my only hope of not being emperor which I do not want is to have this kid grow up and be capable of taking over being emperor when he reaches majority. So he spends 12 years of regency, and he promotes basically essentially based on merit. In the society that they're in, uh, Bariar was cut off from the rest of the galaxy, and in order to make sure that humankind didn't degrade because they had too small of a gene pool, they, they got crazy about killing off people that looked mutated or looked crippled at birth. And so having somebody who's physically deformed is just, it's taboo. And his, so, so it's a very similar parallel. Yeah, it's, it's a I, really I similar parallel. Yeah, and his, his actual, his personal, his personal assistant and adjutant is a guy who took, a, who basically took a nerve damage agent um, in, when defending his wife. And so he's got, he's, he's crippled. He, he walks with a cane and he doesn't have total control over over a, a chunk of his body, like his leg and his arm. And so he's he's fine, he's functional, and in our society he would just be somebody who's who's got a little bit of an impair of an impairment. But in their society he should be he should be removed from the military. And he becomes a he becomes a an actual like high level commander because Errol pushes him through because he says, No, this guy is really smart and really good. And we don't want to waste talents like that. We don't have the resources to to waste smart people right so i guess th- there are other forms of media with that particular theme uh, so let's let's uh sort of shift away a little bit uh getting back more onto the the themes of the the book that we wanted to talk about yeah um which will which will shift us also to to another character i really wanted to make sure we discussed um because central to dalinar's character is i feel this this idea of of honor of holding oneself to a higher standard which which ties back to this uh ends before or means, means before, before ends. ends means before ends idea where dalinar very much comports himself most of the time uh with the idea that you know it matters more how you get there than that you achieve your goal and then if you didn't get there by by correct means it doesn't matter uh, another character we encounter who who sort of struggles with this because the situation he's put in is uh, to be charitable dire um <laughs> but still seems to have this sort of core tenant that uh prohibits him from from taking actions that he otherwise would take uh, i'm talking about the character of, of kaladin yeah um so so some background on kaladin uh Briefly, if you can, but I, there's a lot yeah. there. So. there. so this is Kaladin's flashback book. Each of the books structurally also has 
a set of flashbacks from a single character. So this book has a lot of Kaladin in it because this is this is has Kaladin's flashbacks about every fourth chapter or so. And Kaladin as a character, his current status is he's a slave. He has slaves are branded on their forehead. His brand is a slave brand and also has an extra character on it that means dangerous. It generally means that he's it generally means you're escaped and you killed somebody while escaping and were recaptured, but you probably had some kind of skill that made you valuable enough to keep as a slave anyways. His Dalinar notes when they finally run into each other later, he's like he is a Shah brand. He's a dangerous slave. He's clearly the leader of this group that he's in. And he is skilled in battlefield medicine and is a brilliant spear fighter. Like, the, like I've never seen anybody as good at a spear. How the heck did you learn all that? By accident, Kaladin tells him. Mm-hmm. Kaladin is cagey about his past, and he his father was a his father was a doctor, raised him to be a doctor. He joined the military instead. His father is wonderful, and taught him that basically the life before death part the you can't save people's lives by killing and kaladin disagrees with him uh and that's part of why he went to join the military and kaladin is a wizard with a spear and is a wizard with people he embodies he um it's mentioned on the back of the book so he is going to be a wind runner and the wind runners as an order embody embody protection and leadership are their their main characteristics and he he actually speaks the next ideal the second ideal of the windrunners uh late in the book and then um he gets to speak other ideals that i'm not good well i don't know how much spoiling do you want about what the ideals are for the future Jake? Uh, i would rather not i would rather not uh both because if any of our uh viewer if any of our listeners want to to dig into this I'd rather not spoil them on it and i also rather not spoil myself um Okay. So, so with with Kaladin, it's interesting because he's the, as you mentioned, he's sort of a, a focal point for the book. We get a lot of his backstory in Way of Kings, and it's interesting as he's developing, you see the different points in his life where he's unknowingly taken these oaths, right? These oaths of the Knights Radiant, um, right. either because they were uh, taught to him, instilled in him by his mentors, or because he's, uh, in the case I feel of strength before weakness. Because he's put in a position like he is with Bridge 4, where he feels that there is a grave injustice being done, and if nobody else is going to stand and protect the lives of these men who are not given any agency for for caring for themselves, then he's going to take it upon himself to do that. It's one of the most heroic things he does in the entire book. Yeah, I I actually think that his turning point of strength before weakness is, um, is watching his brother die. When his okay. bro- his brother, the weakest point, it, the weakest point in the army is put in the front, specifically to distract and break. It, like three untrained young kids are put in front, specifically to break a charge, so that they it, so that the momentum is down, so that the other spearmen can deal with them. The weak are sacrificed to protect the strong, and he rejects that. Right, which is actually the the purpose behind. The bridge crews themselves, yes. uh, a circumstance he ends up he ends up in, uh, and the bridge crews are definitely a topic we should talk about because, yes. boy, howdy, there is some morally Ooh. problematic territory to they, explore. They're very much so. So the the physical structure of the way that they're fighting is it's a set of plateaus that 
they call the shattered planes. It looks like somebody took a dinner plate and dropped it, and it broke into pieces, except that it's huge. It is it, it is several miles across. Uh, like, is in on the order of 60. Right, and uh, the dividing points between these plateaus are, are giant chasms, right? Because we're, we're yeah. talking, you take that shattered plate and you, you scale it up, including the distance yes. between the, two, the plates, the pieces. Yes, and so to cross, you need to put down bridges. And close to the war camps, they have permanent bridges because they can protect them. But you can only protect so much territory this way. Because if somebody does manage to destroy one of your bridges, set fire to it, then you, it, then you're trapped and you can't get back. If right, it's a and keep bridge. in mind, their enemies don't need to have bridges. Uh, so oh, if, if that's yes. something that's like, well, that sounds weird. Why don't? Why aren't there just bridges all across if people are waging war yeah. constantly? The, yeah, their enemies the, could just jump. Yeah, the Parshendi have have significantly longer jumping capability than humans, right. and uh, in in their war form, they can jump. They can jump on the order of 20 to 40 feet sometimes with good running so, starts. So that creates this need for these mobile bridges. Uh, the way that they are utilized varies from high prince to high prince. Yes. Uh, Dalinar's, to, to give the, the good guy stance, basically, Dalinar has armored bridges that are pulled by beasts of burden that are also armored, and they are engineering marvels. They, they crank down and fold out to cross a chasm. And they are very slow. And but they're also safe. Uh, you don't lose your engineers. You don't lose your bridge operators in in attacks and assaults. Uh, Sidious decide it, so the 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 whole structure of how they're getting into these combats and why it's taken five years to to deal with the Parshendi here is they've never gotten to the center of the shattered plains. The Parshendi live somewhere in the middle of the plains and they don't have a map that takes them across the chasms. They have to figure it all out. And so the Parshendi. Are, are, in, are somewhere in there. The, the princes are all camped at one side of the Shattered Plains, and they have, they've been fighting for resources. And I mentioned Roshar is a world all of stone, and now I'm going to talk about food supply and logistics, because that's incredibly moral. <laughs> but the, the way they, have, they do have magic users, uh, magic scientists. They use a thing called a Fabriel, and it's a you don't there's no explanation of how it works other than somebody uses the fabriel to soul cast which changes one substance into another they transmute things but they need gemstones to power the fabrials right well and when, these when we're talking about transmuting uh we're talking about they're using uh in some cases these resources these these stones or or uh high lattice gems to make food yep and so they don't have a supply train going back home they're growing food there they're just changing they're just changing stone a pot they're just changing a pile of rocks into into grain mm -hmm. and so they what they do then is they hike out across the shattered plains and there's these these giant humongous colossal crustaceans that actually have that have grown giant gemstones in their hearts they're called gem hearts and they settle down to pupate on a on a plateau and the the armies race to get there because the Parshendi also soul cast the same way. Mm -hmm. And so the what they're doing is contesting for the resources to make food. But both sides have enough of a buffer of gemstones, and both sides have enough other resources that they can just grind each other down for years on end contesting over gem hearts. And gem hearts are also money. So the high princes are contesting for 
for the Gemhart Prizes that keep their humongous war camps operating. Right. And so this is where Sidious, uh, because it's sort of a competition between the High Princes over you know, the person with the most resources, the person who, who captures the most Gemhearts, uh, from the Parshendi, they're the ones who, who get advanced, right? They, their war camps grow, their power grows, their influence grows. So Dias decides that it is most practical to be as efficient as possible, making sure you can get to the gem hearts quickly, and to make sure that his forces, which honestly is his army, is his soldiers, are not really as, as good or as well-trained as some of the others probably because he doesn't actually care that much about individual people. Um, he cares far more about you know, the, the big picture, I guess you could say. Um, so what he ends up doing with his own bridge crews is he has completely unarmored men uh, carrying bridges on their shoulders into battle ahead of his armies. So yep. they're the advance. And what this does is it makes the Parshendi attack the completely unarmored exposed bridge people bridge crews rather than his soldiers which gives his soldiers time to deploy at more or less full strength by the time in his opinion the real fight has started and also gets his bridges into place really quickly compared to the heavily armored pulled by armored uh beasts of burden bridges that dalinar uses right and so his like you mentioned when you were going through, you were like, this seems insane. He seems to be wasting resources. And the answer is no. The bridgeman doesn't require any training. A soldier does. Right. If, if he can sacrifice 10 untrained slaves for one trained, well-equipped, like well-fed man, he'll do it. And he right. made that calculus. And he said, oh, well, 10 men, 10 of the weak, 10 of the slaves are worth one of the strong. Is there a way that I can trade weak in order to save my strong? And so he places he 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 chooses to place weakness in front of strength to defend the strength that he has, which is right. directly counter to the to the second oath of the. Right, it's, and it's not even the only thing that Sidious does. That oh yeah, that he, is he also places death before life. Yeah, Sidious. If you assume, if you take the three oaths and reverse them, that's his character. Right. Um, he Where he's, he cares far more about concluding the war than he yes. does about how you manage to do it. Right, and that that made it, and that's why he's frustrated is because he and Gavilar and and Dalinar all used to be this way. Uh, they would they would do, they would assault a city, and they would say, "Here's the deal: we can't starve you out because you have gems. So, we're going to take a more direct tactic. We're going to take half of our army, and we're going to start killing your countryside around you. All the people that you swore to defend, we're just going to kill them until until those sections flip to us." And they're like, but that's not honorable. And they go, we don't care. We only care about winning. And yeah, that was, you know, remarkably effective for them. <laughs> it, was, it was terrifyingly effective for them. Right. And, yeah. But it's obviously incredibly amoral and runs, again, counter to, to this ideology. And, and I think we, we can agree there's... There's value in it ap apart from the idea of, well, I'll get, potentially get magic powers if I believe in these things. Um, because, I, an interesting point, Dalinar, at least so far in what I've read, so all throughout Way of Kings, Dalinar shows no evidence of ever getting any magic. Uh, he gets, he's getting these visions, um, 
which are a point I wish we had time to go into, but I don't think we do. Um, but he doesn't actually... His, his uh, entire story arc in Way of Kings is actually just one of frustration, where he's uh, he was an incredibly effective warrior trying to learn to be a diplomat and yes. not doing a very good job at it. Yeah, if you, if you look at it in a in a role playing game sense, he is he he off screen before the book is is like a max level uh, fighter or warrior, and he decided to dump all of his class levels in order to start leveling in diplomat. When he goes out and takes the field, he's an unstoppable force, and he is so angry all the time that he can't just transfer those skills. Um, right, and. So- yeah. So, so getting back to to the reason why we wanted to talk about the the bridge crew specifically is this is where our hero Kaladin finds himself yeah. uh, as he's pushed around from slave master to slave master ends up here, which is really the the worst position one could possibly be in is being on one of these bridge crews in the Shattered Plains, working for Sidious's camp specifically, um, and Kaladin yeah. has a so moment of and, despair. And, and on top of that, yeah, on top of that. He is placed in Bridge 4, which is right. the rejects and it's the bridge crew the other bridge crews look down on. Right. It's the one with the highest mortality rate. It's the one that um, it's as much as every bridge crew is considered a death sentence. Bridge 4 is is considered like you are beyond sentence. hope. Yeah. yeah. They, they rotate what days they go out. Um, so bridge crews don't go out every day, which... Uh, Actually, Kaladin, because he's got real military experience, he trained in, in um, under Meridus Amaram, who's back in Sidious's um, home territory, and trains people back home and ships them out. Uh, and he trained in that army, and he was trained competently, uh, through no fault of his commanding officers. But um, <laughs> he he's frustrated because the bridge crews aren't subject to any discipline. They don't train with the bridge every day they don't train physically they do runs come back and slouch around right and because of that uh everyone's exhausted after each after each pull after each haul of the bridge from from one plateau to another yeah and so everyone's just you know collapsing each time and that actually makes them more he, he realizes it's going to make them more prone to dying more prone to injury than if they were able to you know uh, be well trained and be effective and have uh, responses to different stimuli built in uh, so some some things he tries, some tactics he tries once he gets people on board but he is dealing with people who have given up yes. um, and he almost gives up at one point as well which is a, a pivotal point in, in the book I feel. Yeah and this is structurally parallel to, to Honor as well you you do the right thing when it's easy over and over so that you know how to automatically do the right thing when it's hard. And so this is a structural thing that Kaladin, that Kaladin as a character does is that he he trains the bridge crew to, to behave as a team and to, to carry when they're not out on the field getting shot at uh, it, so that when they're out of the field getting shot at, they know exactly what to do and act as a disciplined unit. The way Kaladin ends up winning over uh, the bridge crew and getting them to do this is incredibly inspiring because basically what he ends up doing is he ends up doing that same kind of leadership by example that Dalinar is trying to do um, where he goes over to the lumber yard and is all like hey here's a big long piece of wood it's like my share of the bridge when I'm hauling it can I take this and the people at the lumber yard are like I don't even want to talk to you I don't care 
And so he goes and he starts doing that in front of all of the people on the bridge crew, on, on front of bridge four. And at first, you know, they're, they're not convinced or they think that, you know, he'll give up eventually. Or some of them are just flabbergasted that he hasn't given up on life in general, especially as they keep dying. But he makes a commitment to try to make sure each of them comes back from runs alive, uh, uses his, his surgical training uh, toward that end. And right. it's just... Oh, go on. Well, I was going to say, he also is willing to spend his resources. They get paid a small amount of money each each week, basically. And he takes his money and he bribes the the overall commander of the bridge crews to let him be in charge of the bridge crew. And then he takes his money and he spends it specifically on surgery resources for them. And they know that they don't get provided these for free like soldiers do. He buys bandages and he buys antiseptic. And he buys the things that he needs to keep them alive instead of buying himself shoes. Uh, and right. that's a... That's Which, a... In, in like buying himself shoes, that's really critical because some of the things that they have to do uh, on their off-duty time, because they don't just get to relax when they're not on runs, um, not the kindest on the feet. Yeah. And Remember, this is a world of rocks. Yeah, so... there's, there's no sand, there's no dirt. They're walking on rock all of the time. And, like, when you realize later on, and you go back and you think about it, you're like, wait, he spent this whole book in the same set of ragged sandals that he got off a corpse in scene 10? What? (laughs) Because he makes the point, he's like, yeah, remember that one guy that was nice to me and got shot in the opening bridge run? And he took his his sandals? I'm still wearing those, and they remind me of that guy. And I'm like, how do you still have... What? (laughs) Well... And to be fair, part of that is sort of explained by the fact that uh, one of one of the abilities he gets uh, as he starts to uh, get some of this this magic uh, from from the stormlight uh, is uh, an enhanced regenerative ability. Uh, his, his body will heal at a higher rate when he brings in stormlight. And I don't yes. think we talk much about the high storms and the fact that Roshar yeah. is, is a world r- constantly ravaged by these in, these massive, uh, sha- like uh, world-shattering storms that are carving the stone around and stuff. Like, these are not like these aren't just normal everyday hurricanes. Even these are real, real bad storms. Yeah. Um, and some of their currency, these gems, get infused with light during the storms for reasons that I don't know about and don't tell me about them because I'm sure that that might the term is called later. investiture and that's all I'm going to tell you. Sure. Um <laughs> but the the way it seems that the Knights Radiant operated was they were able to utilize this stormlight uh for their magical purposes. Yes. And so when he starts to be able to do that at one point uh during during his darkest hour during Kaladin's darkest hour um because Believe it or not, uh, Sidious was not particularly fond of the idea of a w- one of his bridge crews like having discipline and trying to save each other. They are supposed to die. That's their job, um, in his mind. And so when when Calden is ultimately blamed for a failed run, which to be fair, it was his fault. Hundred um, percent his fault. Like one hundred percent his fault. Uh, Right, so he gets he gets strung up during a high storm as punishment, and that's kind of his superhero origin story here. Yep. Right, that's the point where he sort of transitions from somebody who's just trying really hard 
to somebody who's trying really hard and starts to get a little bit of help uh, from from his own power in, in this sense. Um, and it's it's kind of cool in a way because that, that kind of origin is is sort of heartening that he was supposed to die, he was intended to die. And it, there's a little bit of a Christ metaphor going on there, which... Um, I, I would is... consider that there's, that there's two points. There's that point, and then there's the earlier point. Um, because uh, one other thing about all these characters is they're broken. Right. Uh, all of the protagonists, except for Adolin, are are broken in some way. Kaladin is straight up depressed, as in clinical depression does not understand why anybody could ever care about anything uh, sometimes. And there's a there's a scene after his first bridge run where he gets up and he walks out to the chasm that they, they let bridgemen go and commit suicide at. They don't care. They don't care about them enough to patrol the chasm that they know that they jump off of to die. And he walks up to it, and somebody says, leave your vest. We might want it. And so he goes out without his vest uh, that, that has a shoulder pads to carry the bridge on. And he stands up there, and then he decides he did die. He's dead. And everything else is going to change. Because he's... And it, it does and it doesn't. Right? Right. Be, because he was also supposed to die there. Right. Like there was a fun, you're right yeah. that there's a fundamental shift in his character and how he starts approaching situations at that point. I think it's a difference between when um, when our hero makes a conscious decision that I am going to, uh, come hell or high water, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to see these goals uh, to fruition, which in this case are, this has to change, this is completely untenable this is monstrous um and when you know they get their powers basically um basically what i was what i was trying to get at was the um that was when he made his decision about what he wanted to do uh but the uh, the aftermath of the high storm is where he realized he was a superhero right where especially when when teft shows up and goes kid how are you breathing in stormlight He's like, I have no idea what you mean. And Tef goes, breathe it in. And he does. He's like, what What just happened to me? And Tef goes, I was pretty sure my parents were liars. But you're one of them. And Kaladin's like, I have no idea what you mean. <laughs> right, and that's the moment Tef's where... the wise old mentor figure, right? Right. In traditional structure. So it's interesting because unlike many other uh, superhero stories that we see uh, where we get our, our origin story is kind of all in one, they get their powers, and or usually it's they get their powers, and then they, they decide to become a hero. Uh, and with Kaladin, it's kind of the reverse, where he makes his decision about what needs to change in the world. And then later on after this, after this uh, event, after this uh, formative event in the High Storm, he learns he has superpowers, right? And prior to this point, he's kind of been using them, but he hasn't really, he doesn't know. Right. Uh, and it's only after he's supposed to have died and didn't that it comes to light that, <laughs> to light, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> there's something different about him compared to other people. And all of the characters are actually structurally like this that, uh, well, that's not strictly true. Um, but the, for the most part, the characters get broken uh, and are trying to fix themselves, and the trying to fix themselves is what attracts a spren. And there's uh, 
there's a whole lot of stuff that I can go into. Spren are animated spirits in the world, and very few of them have consciousness. Most of them are just they're attracted to physical forces and things that happen. So there's there are there are joy spren that come when you're super happy, and there's awe spren that come when you are amazed by something, and there's fear spren and rot spren, and they're attracted by by things. And something that we see very consistently in Way of Kings are glory spren. Yes. Specifically on the battlefield. Yes. Um, so there is an idea, there's this physical embodiment when, when glory is extant, uh, which is fascinating because glory and honor are... They're, they're abstract they're oftentimes, concepts, right? They're oftentimes at odds with each other. Right. And so the... And so then the question is, is there an honor spren? And there is. Um, and because we're willing to spoil book one, um, there's a spren that hangs out with Kaladin all the time, and she can talk. And most Kaladin's never encountered a spren that can talk. And there apparently are casts within spren uh, that nobody knows about. And there are some spren that can talk and are sentient. And they get that in our in, in the physical world, because there's like a spiritual realm where they live. And, or sorry, there's a cognitive realm where they live. There's a spiritual right. realm, which is distinct from that. But um, the the spren live in the cognitive realm, and they're, they're alive and aware there, all the high spren are. And then if they want to be alive and aware here, they have to bond with a human. And they pick up the sentience in our realm from the humans that they bond with. But in order to bond with them, the human must be broken in some way. Uh, Kaladin's depression... Uh, Dalinar has some problems, but he isn't bonded to a spren. Um, Shallan has Shallan has a lot of problems, and yeah. Shallan's done a lot of betraying in her time, among other things. So, but not that she really wants to. That that's a fascinating thing. I'm not convinced that she ever betrays anybody, but um, <laughs> Kaladin will betray people, but Shallan won't. And um, Shallan has a spren, and her spren is they. Other people derogatively call him a lie spren, and she has a she has an acquaintance with the truth in that she she's heard of it. Um, right, she, she's familiar with this, and we we don't actually. So I don't want to get yeah, into yeah, yeah. Uh, into her spren because it's it's for its radius. It's book two. Yeah. Um, that that, that but, comes along yeah. but there yeah, Shallan's story is, is very much about truth and lies yes and so there there's 10 orders of the knights and by the end of oathbringer theoretically all 10 have come on stage but in reality there are several where i'm just like oh i've heard of that order i don't know anything about it i don't like you don't like the oaths are all plot points like Every oath right. that everybody takes for every order is a plot point. And so there's there's actually a character who has sworn a, a big stack of oaths. There's, there's Well, there's several characters that have sworn big stacks of oaths offstage. And they, like, they don't explain them to you. It's just like, oh, surprise, I was already a Night Radiant. And you're like, oh, I want another book with you. <laughs> um <laughs> And so, so the, get, the, get onto the, we wanted um, to cover some, some points that, uh, that Matthew had sent us on this, right? Yeah. Right. Correct. Transitioning back uh, to, cause to even though he's content. not with us, he's still trying to, even though he's not with us, he's, he still has some, some things he wants to make sure we cover. Yeah. Um, just before that, 
uh, one point I wanted to get into is that what we're talking about uh, we're talking about these O's in the context of they're they're making our these O's are, are central to this idea of honor and they're making our heroes uh, our heroes to the people who do the right thing right but it's interesting that did you have a I'm just agreeing continue oh, okay um, but there is a a point. Uh, a pretty central plot point where a character does something that is clearly highly amoral and yet is not out of line as far as I can tell with any of those first three O's of the Knight's Radiant and therefore gets a complete pass from from Syl, from, from the spread around our, our hero Kaladin. Uh, and that is... So at one point when they're scavenging some... Uh, corpses some fallen bodies right yep. they're they're from from previous battles they're getting materials left behind by soldiers of both sides uh so the parshendi they grow this this chitinous armor on them on their persons and kaladin has noticed that they react the, the there's a parshman uh, who's related to the parshendi they're like the same race but they're they appear to be very docile by comparison and He's noticed that whenever he or his men have have touched the corpses of the fallen Parshendi, that this parchment just completely wigs out, just gets incredibly upset. And he gets the idea that maybe he can use this, because again, they have to go out unarmored normally, because they're supposed to be targets. And so he gets this idea that, well, what if I can be out there in armor and still be a prime target? So he literally peels these these corpses skin off desecrates their corpses to make armor for himself and his plan works but what he is doing is exactly that he is desecrating corpses in order to save lives and because what he's doing this for ultimately is to save lives he gets a pass right and i find that fascinating yeah he he definitely follows the life before death the radiant seeks to defend life always he never kills it necessarily and never risks his own life for frivolous reasons Living is harder than dying. The Radiant's duty is to live. So he takes the hard choice. This is the way that he can live and the way he can save lives and makes it. And it it's morally very ambiguous because the, the person I hate him for it. Right. And I'm curious what you think about this because it does seem to me that this act might fall counter to the idea, the oath of a journey before destination. Well, that the means he is using are not the most honorable means in order to achieve his goal, which is satisfying yet another oath. Right. So the thing is that all of this squabbling, all this ground level fighting between different random people, the, the knights specifically were founded to fight this this existential threat of the desolations and the problem is that that's not the current state of the world at the opening of the books there's no existential threat to everybody and so you have to align yourself somehow to your your clan your kin group your nation your faction right and you have to decide who's more important and that's that's a problem that everybody struggles with throughout the course of the books is why is what makes my group of people more important other than I was randomly born here, right? Right. Right. So it's interesting, and it actually goes very nicely into the first question here that we've got, which is what happens when somebody 
goes against one of these oaths. Um, are they held accountable? Is it a case where um, they hold they end up having to hold themselves accountable? Do they realize they're doing it? Um, and the, the, there's this idea that that we have when when you take an oath specifically uh, in fantasy or in real life, there's this idea that you will never run counter to that. Uh, but we all know the real world can be very messy, and that's true in this world of Roshar as well. So, what? How, how does the book treat that idea? So, I mean, we clearly know that the that the Knights Radiant historically broke their oaths. They they deliberately ran counter to their oaths, and they stopped being Knights Radiant at some point in the past. That's the the day of recreants, right? So somebody holds them accountable. Uh, the magic system is based on you swearing and meaning these oaths. And it's also based on you bonding a spren. And the spren, in a lot of ways, are the ultimate arbiters of whether or not you follow the oath. When I talked about Syl being an honor spren, if you do something that fundamentally conflicts with what she believes is honorable, then you're going to you're going to have a bad time. You're you're going to lose your your capability to be to be a knight radiant. Your capability to to channel stormlight. Your capability to to do all of the amazing things that that being a knight gives you and that arbitration but that and this gets into into some of the theories and guesses because this whole system is clearly artificial in some way the the connection of the right. spren to the powers to the to the oaths being being an arbitrary built up structure and uh like i have fan theories and guesses that the that the bondsmiths actually like did a lot of the plumbing work on this and they're the ones who are ultimately the ones holding you accountable is the ancient bondsmiths that did something to make this work but that's right we, we know nothing about it and we can only speculate it is interesting though because if we try to draw a parallel to the media that that we usually talk about on this podcast uh so I am I am contractually obligated to mention one of the Netflix Marvel series on every episode. Uh, so in this case, oh, I'm going to bring up Daredevil and also uh, from from the DC Universe Batman. These are two characters who have effectively taken an oath not to kill. Yep. But they're the only ones holding themselves accountable to that. Yeah, and they they don't lose powers except that I mean they kind of do. Um, there's there's a very there are very rare Batman storylines where he kills and then. Mostly when he kills, he just stops being Batman. He gives it up. He can't deal with being Batman anymore. Right? Right. And right. like yeah, even the... um I love the 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 um DC animated universe from the late nineties, early two thousands. And uh have you watched Batman Beyond? Yes. Yeah. Love Batman Beyond. Right. But the one of the one of the backstory pieces to Batman Beyond is Bruce Wayne picks up a gun and shoots at a criminal. And then he right. sets down being Batman because he did something outside of what he considered to be acceptable for him to do as Batman, right? That's a great parallel, actually. That That's very similar, only in this case it's, again, him himself who's taking his power away. Yeah. But it's the same kind of idea that, like, I, I, I am no longer Batman if I fail to follow this tenet I, I laid down for myself. Right. And... It's very similar to what's going on here with the Knights Radiant, where they stop being able to be those protectors if they violate those core principles that they're supposed to uphold. Right. And there's, there are possible, and what happens with the Oath comes into conflict is the next thing, is uh, 
journey the journey of is that failure is better than winning by unjust means but what if winning would save a number of lives well right um plot point uh i my my notes say uh there's a plot point in book three that's pretty major that centers on this which is true but like you just have to ask yourself what happens if you find out that something you've been doing your whole life or is part of the nights directly conflicts an oath that you've taken what fi- what happens if you find out that you've been living a lie and what does that do for you as a character and they it, brandon sanderson mines into that pretty deeply and then they they're like then he presents that as a problem to the current knights and he's like hey the other knights found out about this so <laughs> and so <laughs> so we can't talk too deeply about that but I, I... Other than to say it comes up. Yes. I haven't read it yet, so we're not going to talk about it because we're trying to respect uh, no spoilers for me yeah, uh, it's, for now until I finish the series. It's close to 750,000 words in your future, by my best guess. So um, cool. have fun with that. Um, <laughs> seems seems good. Uh, uh, so, but but anyway, yeah, there's so, so there's some parallels we can draw uh, both to, to other fiction that we digest, but also to the real world. Right. Um. Specifically, talking about uh, some some things that have been circulating the news. Not recently, but uh, a few months ago, there was a lot of talk about how the police should comport themselves in our country, for example, and what their role is in our society, and what they should be willing to subject themselves to or not, or what can, what they can be criticized for or not. Um. And and it all center. Oh, oh. Yeah, I was gonna say so the. The thing that most people think is the the core tenet of the police is to protect and serve, which is really just the LAPD. But uh, that's that's like their core tenet, their core oath. We protect the public and we serve the public, right? Mm-hmm. Which parallels these these Knights Radiant oaths very strongly. Right. Uh, now, there's a lot left to interpretation in something that simple, right? In just a, a, a blanket statement like that. But there's... There's more, um, there's more to be mined in that idea, and especially uh, we have varying opinions about, about the role of the police in our country, but there's something that uh, I think many of us would feel betrayed if we saw a police officer, for example, if we, we learn about a police officer doing things that are against what we consider to be uh, their, their tenants, their roles. So we, we kind of have these protectors ourselves in a way societally or or look at our military uh, as well and and what they're supposed to and not supposed to do when we hear about our people uh, our military people uh torturing prisoners of war for example that directly contradicts uh what we expect them to 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 be doing this uh, central idea in our society um that uh whenever you're in a position to enact change there's this implicit understanding that there's uh, a set of, of core tenets you must adhere to about what you can and cannot do, and that is showing and it shows up in our fiction, like here in in Way of Kings with with the Oza Knights Radiant. Whenever you're supposed to be protecting, whenever you're supposed to be acting as a force for good, that must come part and parcel with some kind of code or or set of ideals, because otherwise, if you don't have that. There's no compass. There's no guideline for right. for your activity. Right. And the I'm actually going to go to one of my favorite Battlestar Galactica quotes, uh, which is uh, 
because I, I love Battlestar Galactica, Abiladama makes the point when they're like, well, can't we use your military to police? And he goes, uh, the military policing civilians is a bad idea because the military is designed to fight an enemy. They, they're structured to do so. And if you start having the military police your citizens, then they're going to treat your citizens like an enemy because their code is not centered on, in, in a lot of modern military circumstances, is not centered on serving the public but fighting an enemy, right? No, and that's that's a great point. Now, I'm actually a, I also am a big fan of Battlestar Galactica and, and of Bill Adama specifically as a character. I think it's just a, a wonderful exploration of what happens when somebody who's previously in a position of purely uh, military authority is suddenly having to deal with these enormous moral conflicts right. uh, on a basically daily basis, as far as I can tell. Um and it comes with this idea that he understands what his people, what the people under his charge are trained to do and are trained to act. And the fact that he reacts to the idea of his military being used as a police force in that way is very enlightened, very wise. Uh, because it comes with that understanding of this is what they agreed to do. And this is why what you want them to do isn't going to work. Right. And... So when when you look at these these oaths of the the knights radiant, their their oaths are vague. Their oaths are discretionary. You should try to do your best. Is a lot of of what they boil down to, and not everybody can deal with moral codes like that, where it's right. where it's try to do the best thing that you can do at any given circumstance. And that is that is like when you look at the at the it, there's like philosophical models of how people deal with the world out there, right? And that is that is like the very top, like you're the advanced, most enlightened moral philosopher stage, right? And they they definitely get into that in the books. Um, I'm going to I'm going to spoil very slightly uh, the the structure of the Skybreakers, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, the the Skybreakers as a as an order of knights are dedicated to law. They 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 don't care about if something is morally correct, they serve the legal principles that the civilian authority has put into place, basically. So when the kingdoms are fractured like this, a skybreaker, if they were if they were around and going through these, would serve local law enforcement. And they would they would try to follow the local laws of the area. And whoever has the the the, the current temporal authority is the people that they would serve the law of. And their oaths revolve around these things right and they would understand presumably and, and again uh trying not to get too many spoilers but presumably they would understand uh because they are uh in principle supposed to be protectors and, and wardens and nurturers of, of these societies that if a moral quandary came around where there was no basis in law that that's not their bailiwick yes and they, they in fact will they fall need, back and like, punt and hand it off to like the wind runners or the bondsmiths and say yo we we have no idea what to do here, um, right? Right. Well, we could talk for a considerable amount longer yes. about this story in general and these things in specific. And there's a lot more things I would love to have had the opportunity to talk about. But eventually, we do need to save people their ears. So we're gonna we're gonna wrap up. Are there any closing thoughts that you have that you want to make sure that we shared? Uh, on way of king specifically or the this centralized idea of of oaths of honor in general in our media uh so 
one of the things that Way of Kings really hits, and I've touched it a little bit, is people make mistakes and people are flawed and people are broken. And as I mentioned, like there's one character that really that's central that really isn't broken he was raised right and he got lucky but all of the other characters make mistakes they all do things that are wrong they all they all actually go against their sometimes their own best interests or even what they swear for their codes and fiction in general has a lot of capability to teach us how to deal with situations without having to deal with the situations and this gives you a lot of conceptual framework tools to look at what happens when i when i fail to be the person that i swore that i would be which is, I think, a, 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 at least as important as just talking about oaths themselves is what happens when they fall down. Right. Yeah, and in the fact that we see people challenged with these ideas, with that very idea, presumably in the narrative uh, at multiple points, is, is a very powerful story to tell, especially when we're given to it in, in a piece of media that is dealing with look, people are flawed, people are going to fall on their face, they're going to make mistakes. And some of those mistakes are going to have very major consequences yes. and potentially cause them to run counter to their ideology. Yeah, it's, that's uh, something I'm looking forward to reading more of. I'm probably going to pick up uh, more of the second book immediately after hanging up here. Yeah, uh, I was so excited for book three. Um, book three is Dalinar's flashback book. Um, <laughs> oh god do, s s don't say anything else. yeah that's <laughs> no that's it <laughs> hurry oh, you'll boy. get there someday i know you okay. love shallan i think she's your favorite character but i love dalinar she is yeah. shallan is my favorite character i would love to talk more about her but we'll save that for the words of radiance episode yeah. uh, which is her book so yep. uh so anyway rob um where can where can people find you? Can people find uh, any writing by you or any other? I, mean, I know you mentioned you record for Magic the Amateur, yeah. uh, which is the podcast I I listen to yeah. frequently. I do a lot of Magic the Gathering content stuff, mostly judge things. Uh, the I tend to just direct people to my email because I don't actually tweet on Twitter very much, and I don't have a lot of like philosophical writings out there. I have a lot of like nuts and bolts of how the judge program works. So. If you're super interested in how to make cards for tokens to distribute out to people, uh, send me an email. I'm robert at gmail.com. And if you want to talk about the Magic Judge program and, you know, more authority in judging, I will gladly do that. Sure. And then, so, uh, just for, for our listeners who are listening to this episode and going, hmm, uh, if you are interested in engaging in the conversation, I'd like to encourage you not only to give us feedback on Twitter, Facebook, via email. So on Twitter, we're, we're at Superhero Ethics. Uh, you can find us at Superhero Ethics on Facebook. Um, but also, if you're, if you're interested, if you've got a topic you're very excited about, go ahead and reach out to us. We're happy to engage with our fan base. And, you know, if we, if, uh, we start connecting with you, we start talking with you, we'll probably ask you on for an episode about a thing, especially if you've talked us into digesting that thing and then we really liked it and we wanted to talk about it we just, we're looking for people who are passionate and who uh really like to engage in these kinds of discussions uh we think that uh, we're, we're definitely not the only people by any stretch of the imagination who can say things of value and maybe sometimes we don't even say things of value but it we're hoping at least that people appreciate what's going on uh when we are talking speaking of that uh reviews so if you're getting us on itunes 
We would very much appreciate a review. We, we appreciate feedback of all forms. We're interested in what you think we're doing well. We're interested in what you think we could afford to work on. Uh, if you think we're worth five stars, great. We'd love to have that review. If not, again, please tell us why. Please give us that feedback. We're, we're really willing to hear it. We're always willing to figure out how we can improve. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd also like to mention that a former guest and supporter of our podcast, co-host of the MCU podcast, Matthew Carroll, has just released an album. It's called Left to Burn, and according to Matthew, I haven't had a chance to listen to it myself, but I do intend to. Uh, it is very good. Music is very good on this album. You can find it on Spotify and on Apple Play, and we'll put a link in the show notes to this episode so you can uh, you can go and find that and enjoy it. Uh, on behalf of Superhero Ethics, myself, Matthew, who's uh, we'll be with us on our next recording, I expect. And on Rob, thank you very much. Have a good day.